Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and as we record this in mid-December 2022, I'm feeling nostalgic. On a personal note, this week marks the 32nd anniversary of the date when I first met my wife, the incredible Susan Sandler. Let me share a quick, funny story. As we were preparing for the book launch of How We Win the Civil War, the Democracy in Color team, led by Olivia Parker, put together this amazing trailer for the book. It's on my website, stevephillips.com. When I showed the trailer to Susan, she started crying. I first thought she was crying because the trailer was so powerful and moving, and it is. But what she said through her tears was that how I have gotten so much better at speaking and communicating. So apparently I used to be really bad at it. And as I think about it, it actually, when we were launching the first book, Brown is the New White in 2016, she insisted then that I go get formal media training. So I guess I have gotten a little bit better. But the reason I wanted to share that story is it's a manifestation of what I wrote in the dedications of both my books about how pretty much anything I've accomplished over these past 32 years, I couldn't have done without her. Many people know that Susan has invested in lots of people of color, most notably being Stacey Abrams' first major donor and also supporting leaders like Andrea Guerrero of San Diego, Tran Nguyen of Virginia, and the national education leader, Linda Darling-Hammond. But what that story reminded me is that she's also invested in me. So I just wanted to mark this anniversary by sharing that story and pausing to appreciate Susan's partnership for these past 32 years. I'm also feeling nostalgic today about the year that was and the red wave in politics that never materialized. And as this is the last podcast of the year, we are going to reflect back on the major events of 2022. And for that conversation, I'm joined by my co-host Charlene Chang and by our esteemed data doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega. How are you both? And Charlene, do you want to take us on a walk down memory lane? Hey, Steve. Doing well overall. You know, we are a family who, like many families across the country, have been in the throes of colds and flu type of symptoms. It's the sort of, uh, what do the people call it? Like, quote unquote, post-pandemic revenge, you know, people being around each other more, kids mm. being back in school and the sort of the full first winter. But we are fortunate uh, overall, you know, we're all going to be fine. We just, it's just annoying. And yeah, it's just part of back to regular winters in a lot of ways, as my husband kept reminding me. He's like, this is how it used to be. You just <laughs> forgot. <laughs> Especially having a kid who you know goes to the school and brings stuff home. Julie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And I was really moved by Steve's remark. Oh, yeah. I, totally. I'm one of those people who have the pleasure of having known the two of them before they were a a complete married unit and um oh. you know i yeah so it's just it's really um it feels good to think back on those early days and all of the amazing things that the two of you have accomplished together since then and yeah it's just been one of those great relationships that you look at and just really it makes you feel good to see two people building a life the way that you two have so congratulations to you both Thank you. You were you were at our wedding. We were both. Uh, <laughs> I was there. We, we both looked a little different than we do now. <laughs> we all did. <laughs> yes. Getting better every day, though. I like That's to right. look at it that way. <laughs> Aging, vintage. So this is our final episode of 2022. We're all taking a break for the holidays. So there's not going to be an episode at the end of December. For those of you listening, take a bit of a break. I personally just can't believe overall how quickly this year went. I remember different parts of the year going, 
I can't believe it's May. I can't believe it's June, right? And it's like, now it's like, I can't believe it's mid-December. And just to think about where we started off this year. So I was jogging my memory, looking through some old you know, emails and texts. And Steve, in January, we were still working on wrapping up the How We Win the Civil War manuscript. I was mm-hmm. checking email and text messages. We were working on footnotes, final copy editing. That just seems like so long ago. Uh, on top of your book coming out this year, and by the way, if we haven't mentioned this uh, already to the listeners, it became a national bestseller again, hit a bunch of lists, and we're so proud and excited. And you know, again, Steve, congratulations, and very, you know, we're just thrilled as an entire team. Looking back at this year, there were definitely a lot of ups, and, and there were some downs, and we're going to talk about that, and we're going to kind of reflect on politics and pop culture moments and just the things that come to mind when we think about this year and also things that we're thinking about in terms of going forward, what we feel hopeful about. I know that we have talked a little bit about this before, but we're going to sort of recap major victories in politics this year. Of course, we're all still riding the high and feeling kind of like a sigh of relief about the Georgia Senate runoff and that Senator Raphael Warnock is getting another term and we are not going to have in Georgia a senator who loves and talks about werewolves and vampires and is unrepentant misogynist. When he's not uh, (laughs) committing physical violence on his domestic partners. Yeah. Yep. Totally. So I'm going to go around and check with both of you in terms of what comes to mind, some of the top memories into politics. First, for both of you, I know for me, there are so many highlights, but I'm just going to say that one of the things that really stands out is our former podcast guest, Summer Lee. She won her race and will become the first Black woman from Pennsylvania to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. So awesome. So exciting. She'll be joining several other amazing progressive women of color in The Squad. And she won against so many odds. And it for me, that's just a great sign on so many fronts for what is happening in this country that often doesn't get reported. And it's a great sign overall for the future, for the generations coming up. And I just don't feel like that story made the headlines the way a lot of other stories did. So I wanted to lift that up. So Steve and Julie, how about you guys? What are some of this year's wins and politics in particular that really stood out for you and that you're going to carry with you going forward? Well, for me, it's Arizona. I mean, I think Arizona was what is going to take me into the holidays in a celebratory mood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, winning the governor's race, which you know we'd all hoped for. We, for folks who don't know, we were pretty involved in trying to be supportive of the work on the ground and the leaders on the ground in Arizona who were really primed to be able to, you know, follow up on the good work that came out of the 2020 presidential election and make this midterm a really, you know, high watermark for the state in terms of democratic performance. And and they really did come through. I mean, I was just so in awe of the the leaders on the ground down there, um, many of whom are, are, you know, book plug here, are featured in the the How We Win book, uh, rightly so. And so they were able to win, as you know, folks I'm sure see in the in the national news quite often that the governor's race there. Apparently, the Republicans, no surprise given the overall argument in How We Win, have not given up the fight. And just a couple of days ago, filed a lawsuit trying to challenge the outcome in the governor's race. But bankrolled by Mr. Pillow, the uh, 
pillow guy who funds all Trump's crazy um, right wing nonsense. Right. Uh, Pretty much all of which have lost, if I recall. So, yeah. So so yet another lawsuit that we'll have to deal with. But, uh, you know, Mark Kelly was able to hold that seat despite a ton of money being thrown at that race from from the Republican Party, Adrian Fontes also, you know, a number of statewide races. And then in the state legislature, really, really coming close, uh, more than folks had even been, you know, with those of us who like to do our data analyses and whatnot of what's possible. I mean, really, really maximized things so that we're set up in a place for, you know, something like what happened in Michigan with a, a flip of the at least one of the chambers. So that's, I think, just really good stuff, really exciting. And it bodes very well going into 2024, which is already on my mind in terms of Arizona staying not just purplish, but actually bluish. And, you know, as we line up, which states President Biden at this point, most likely will be uh, most likely to win and hold um, going into the next uh, presidential. I, I think for me, I mean, certainly Arizona as a cornerstone, but it, it, it's actually the broader midterms overall. And as we talk repeatedly about on the podcast, right, we were like both baffled and, you know, shouting in the wind about like it is not a given that you are going to get wiped out in the midterm elections that's not what the math shows that's not how you that's not how these elections work everyone's misunderstanding it and we kept trying to make that argument and we did the you know new majority index we talked about that on here and so i just feel incredibly affirmed with that the democrats held the Senate. They're typically talking about 20, 30, 40 seat losses in the right. House. And mm. it's we'll likely have a four, we'll be down four votes in the House, maybe five, Woo-hoo. depending on these on this recount. And we really shouldn't even be down at all. When I'm actually went back mm-hmm. to dig into it and in that, you know, Julius McCart some of these numbers between some of these very close races in California and New York, there are 14 races that were decided by three points or less. Wow. And so we really should actually even still hold the house. But the fact that this stupid red wave turned out to no be a red wave. T- yes. A little tiny trickle. I even say a ripple <laughs> trickle is just fundamentally affirming. So that Congress in particular, and then the also a lot in most of the states in terms of the, the a lot of these statewide elections. Julie talked about Arizona, you know, also the Midwestern states of uh, Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, all like the Democratic governors, which is going to be critical come 2024 when they try to, you know, steal the election again. And then also Georgia. And then we you know talked before, you know, I think we talked after the election about, you know, Stacey's not winning, but it was interesting and frankly, encouraging to me around not just Warnock winning, I'm like, you know, mainly pleased and excited that he won. And but I cannot get over the fact that Walker did as well as he did, given his absolute absence of qualifications. But that also explains why Stacey didn't win. But what's been great about it is seeing now the media finally getting religion around this. No pun intended with Reverend Raphael Warnock. But if all these articles now about like, oh, Georgia's a swing state. Georgia's actually in competition. Democrats can actually win in Georgia. I know. Isn't it so funny? Right. We've been saying this for a decade, right? (laughs) But it's great to have, you know, people coming around to it. And so I just feel incredibly affirmed in terms of, you know, our analysis, our assessment of that there is a new American majority in this country. 
And if we mobilize and turn out that new American majority, we will win. That's what we've been saying. And that fundamentally is what happened in the midterms. Brown is the new white. Yes, we've the been whole saying. book <laughs> came out in 2016. Do you know the... Um, <laughs> I guess we're on whatever nostalgia mode. I'm sure we haven't said this in the podcast. Do you know the origins of the phrase for the title for the book, Brown is the New Way? So Julie, who we know, is from Texas, <laughs> went home to Texas in, this must have been 20. It was a Christmas break around, yeah. In 2013, 2012, around then. And she brought me back a T-shirt that said, Brown is the New White. And it was like by some local oh, right. small That's business. Awesome. And the name of the small business was like beans and rice productions or something like that. And that is where that phrase came into my mindset. And then we ultimately took it and ran with it. Changed history. We should give that place a book. Hey, that's awesome. Oh, we that's should, a great story. Yeah, I, I I love that story. I had forgotten about it. You told it before to me, but I, I love that story and it just gets better over time. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a craft fair, if I recall correctly. And I saw it and I was like, oh my God, that's so Steve. <laughs> little little did you know <laughs> how Steve it would be. Yes. Like I said earlier, when we were deciding on today's topic. And we said, let's talk about like some of our top highlights for the year in politics. I found it to be a really good problem that I, I went back through news articles and sort of jogged my memory. And there were so many to choose from. So, you know, before we pivot to sort of our top disappointments, let's call it, I want to stay on the positive note and just say, I want to surface a few other of the political highlights that kind of came to my mind. And just kind of see you have you guys kind of riff off them and see like what you know what you remember about when those different bits of news broke because it just I think it's really important for us to just keep celebrating the, win the wins and keep in mind all the wins because the work is so hard and because there's certainly no shortage of challenges. So this is not an exhaustive list at all. Just a few more things I wanted to mention from this year. Okay, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson was confirmed as the first Black woman Supreme Court justice. Democrats elected their first Gen Z politician, Maxwell Frost, to the House. The Senate passed a $750 billion climate, health care, and tax bill. And Biden announced a revised primary calendar that would bump up heavily Black states like South Carolina and Georgia to the front of the primary calendar. And Hakeem Jeffries was elected the first Black House minority leader. That's a short list of sort of you know, if you want to talk about like the top hits of 2022, those were some that came to my mind. I wanted to just get you guys to chime in on any thoughts around any of those or if anything else is coming to mind now that we we want to make sure that we mention. Just to well, clarify for our listeners, I'm not going to. Well, I what I know what I'm going to choose, but that in terms of Maxwell Frost, people haven't heard of him. He's the um, congressman from Florida now that congressman elect. But, yeah, he's going to be. One of the youngest people ever um, to serve in the Congress. I think for me, the uh, I mean, it was such a striking contrast to watch the hearings for now Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. When you remember back the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, which was the last time I like really paid attention because I just could not with uh, Amy Coney Barrett and mm -hmm. um, the photograph that came out of there of her young daughter mm -hmm. sitting there with this incredible just glowing pride as she looks yeah. upon her mother you know and and this was not an easy hearing i mean i can just imagine 
how incredibly painful it would have been for the little girl to watch these people like actually verbally attack her mother. Right. But watching her mother hold strong, push back, have exactly the right answer in a way that no one even dreamt could there could be such a good answer to the the incredibly you know negative commentary that that the senators were trying to foist upon her and and to just have that i mean i i just i just can't uh, i think as a mom i'm like wow that like who would not dream of having the admiration and love and respect that little girl was showing toward her mother. I mean, it was just such a moving experience. And as a person who, you know, she's, she's in my age cohort. I mean, she's just so outstanding is not even the word, right? So to watch like you, to watch them not be able to cut her down and not be able to destroy in any way her dignity was just awe-inspiring. I mean, I, I don't really have the right words right now to, to say it, but that was a moment that will live with me forever. And I think that for a lot of parents who are women of color, especially those of us who are in law and the policy world and whatnot, talk about an inflection point. I mean, the world shifted, I feel, when when that hearing happened and she became one of the justices. Absolutely. Thanks for reminding that photo is iconic. Yeah, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of riff off of that a little bit because it's a similar type of a deal. It with a bit of an extension in terms of you know because we talk about the math side of organizing people of color, bringing them into the electorate, expands the electorate, makes it makes it possible for people of color to win. And we don't talk as much about the cult, the cultural in the social dimensions as well, but those are also very significant and you can't manufacture those. So that was like this genuine moment that resonated with, and particularly with moms, particularly with moms of color, et cetera, the way that Julie was describing. And I think similarly during that hearing, for me, when Cory Booker went off on defending her right before the vote, and he just gave this passionate, unapologetically race conscious embrace and support of her. And he says, you People can't steal my joy. I just look at you and I'm so happy that you're going to be on the court. And it's just he spoke for really, you know, all people of color, certainly all black people mm -hmm. and having people in those positions in the top. That is the all you need the democracy to reflect you. And so right. that is a fundamental manifestation of those, both having now Justice Jackson and everything that she represented, and then having Corey from his perch bring that to bear, quoting Langston Hughes in the, in the process of defending her, et cetera. And then similarly is kind of a little bit lost to history to a certain extent. But so Hakeem Jeffries um, being elected as the top Democrat in the House now, poised to become Speaker, the Democrats take the House back. What people miss and have missed is that during the impeachment hearings, he was one of the people making the case. And there was this moment on national television where he's trying to argue the case and to the Congress. And he's, he says this line, and you know, forgive me because I'm not the hip hop person, but he was notorious B.I.G. And he says from in the U.S., you know, Congress says, and if you don't know, now, you know. And yeah. it was just like this, you know, weaving together this cultural force in this electoral space and just giving a sense of what a true multiracial democracy can look and feel and sound like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have to say that there's a connection point to Maxwell Frost. I mean, he's not just the first Gen Z 
He's first Gen Z and he is coming with all the realities of what it is to be Gen Z right now, right? So it was just in the papers this week that he went to go try to find an apartment in DC, which you have to do when you're gonna, mm. you know, be living. And he couldn't get one, at least he hadn't as of, you know, whatever press time was then, because of his credit score, right? right. This is a young African American right. mm. man uh, who, you know, that's probably the case for a whole lot of of young men of color, and and it's expensive. This is a crazy expensive city right now to live in. And the that is not disconnected from the fact that we're no longer Chocolate City, right? This the city which has historically been an African American city, where you know the the culture, the political world, the uh, business world was very much dominated by African Americans, and that's no longer the case. And this Gen Z politician elected to Congress, what an amazing thing! That even then, it doesn't open all the doors to right. you. Right. And it's, but he brings um, that yeah. experience base to exactly. the highest level, highest level. So this power, whole reflecting right. your and seeing yourself in democracy and the the institutions of democracy, he is it for young right. people right now. Yeah, there's this documentary film, uh, "Knock Down the House," that chronicles AOC's election and the other uh, some of the other people who ran for Congress in 2018, and it it ends with her victory party, or close to close to the end of it, and she's. She goes, she's running and they feel cameras right there. And so she's running and they'll go to go running into the establishment where, you know, she's going to accept the victory and, and share with her people. And then she stopped at the door and because it's like this, you know, short woman of color. It's like, wait, are you supposed to be in here? And she's like, she points at the TV. It's like, no, that's me. Right. And so <laughs> but in terms of that, everyone always feels like you can be excluded. Do you belong here, et cetera. People who have those experiences don't generally get to the top levels of politics. But as we're saying, this is what's starting to change. And I just want to put um, Frost's situation in for the context because I had been following him on social media and also in the news. The irony is, and it's also very revealing of, you know, the barriers to running for office in what is, you know, supposed to be a democracy where everybody can run, is that he ran a part, partly, you know, he was saying his credit is bad, because he ran up so much debt running his historic mm-hmm. congressional race. He's like, it's really expensive to run a race. And I had to quit my job. Mm-hmm. And this is partly how I won folks, but now I have bad credit and I can't mm-hmm. get a place to live to do my job to serve the public. And it's yeah. just ironic. And yeah. But I love this generation's, because he is so active on social media, of course, and because he is so cut from different cloth of not, not your grandfather's political figure he's just sharing his story very openly mm-hmm, he's just like mm-hmm. look at me like i'm just like you rest of gen z like this is this is the reality of how our system works and this is yeah. why this yeah. is how it's broke broken in a lot of ways so yeah like i said those are in literally just a few more of the actually amazing wins and highlights from this year we could probably do like a way longer episode just going through every single one but i hope that does inspire people to you know remember a lot of the wins and go back and look for some more Um, we really want to just hold on to those so that we don't forget because as we're going to pivot to talking about there were a lot of challenges there were losses and these are things that we just, you know, we want to keep it real. It's not like none of those things happened this year for sure. So I will just start with the biggie, big 
loss this year, big, huge blow, um, quite devastating, is that we witnessed the overturn of Roe v. Wade, which had guaranteed everyone in this country a constitutional right to a safe, accessible abortion since 1973. Many of us, if not most of us, were hoping, if not kind of willfully believing that this would not happen within our lifetime, and it did. And that is something that many are trying to do their best to fight against it. But it is, you know, that decision was made by the Supreme Court this year. And it was very a big blow and very telling in terms of where our country is heading. Another devastating or moments in the news were there were several mass shootings as our country continues to face sort of the impact of our nation not having basically uh, gun control laws in place to keep people safe. You know, there was a situation, there was the uh, mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. There was uh, one in Buffalo, New York, and more recently at the LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs. And on that same note, the attacks on the LGBTQ community overall were just rampant this year, including Florida passing the Don't Say Gay Bill, And nationwide, we are just witnessing a record number of anti-trans bills introduced and laws being passed by the right targeting trans youth and restrictions on gender-affirming medical care. We also watched the January 6th hearings come and go. Trump is still not being held accountable. My daughter still asks me regularly, when is he going to be put in jail and why has he not yet? And I don't have a good answer. That continues to be really maddening. Uh, and, and the dude has announced, you know, his run for 2024. So just the epitome of not even, you know, act like a mediocre white man, but like a criminal fascist white man. And you can just thinking that you can keep succeeding up. We are also going to remind people that this to me is something that's still like totally bothering me. Billionaire Elon Musk buying out Twitter. And on top of that, he encouraged people to vote Republican in the midterms and he has allowed Trump to return to Twitter So for me, you know, he just needs to be canceled. I don't know what, you know, what we're going to do about him. And so I'm just going to stop right there because I'm like, I'm kind of getting myself all worked up. But I also definitely want to hear from both of you, Steve and Julie. You know, it's not like we're trying to get into a negative zone, but we are trying to keep things real and try to remind ourselves of the challenges from this year. And, you know, clear eyed what we're facing as we head into the new year and the next election cycle. So Steve, I'll start with you. What are some things that stood out for you? And then after that, uh, Julie, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, no, I think the things that you that you raised and mentioned are some of the primary pieces. And I think for me, what helped me process almost all of the bad news was having spent two years deeply researching and trying to write a book about the past 157 years in terms of what's happened since the Civil War. And so when you see the level to which the you know Confederates and the modern-day Confederates have shown contempt for the Constitution, shredded the social contract, and been willing to turn to um, all manner of things up to including um, violence and domestic terrorism, then things like you know the, the, the Roe v. Wade decision, et cetera, becomes part of this process. And so, you know, the Supreme Court passed Brown versus Board of Education, desegregating the schools. And then school districts championed, rallied on by their leaders, shut down entirely for years rather than educate Black students. And when the Freedom Summer came in 1964 and all these people came from across the country, multiracial young people, registered people to vote in Mississippi, 
They first bulked up the jails because they wanted to arrest 20,000 people, put them in jail. And then they created a whole new, more violent clan organization. And that's the grouping that was responsible for killing Schwerner Goodman and Cheney in 64. All of the stuff that's happened in this year is in that context. And so I've seen it in that context. And I think that that is tempered by what we had talked about before, is that despite all of that, not even just the stuff this year, but all the stuff over the past 157 years, we do continue to make progress. Right, that, that Reconstruction was overthrown in, in 1876 in a, the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, where, again, the losing you know, pro-slavery side, they, they were fighting for the White House. But the compromise was like, okay, we'll let you have the White House. Give us back the South. Pull the troops out so that the slave owners could take back control of the South. The person who brokered that compromise, so Georgia senator named John Brown Gordon, that seat that John Brown Gordon held is now held by Reverend Raphael Warnock. And so, amen. yes, I put all of these things in that context. And so then in that sense, since we're looking at the things from this year that I think are most concerning heading to next year, I would, well, particularly raise this with the the normalization and and acceptance of treasonous language, where you have Trump tweeting out, we should suspend the constitution. And as I say, hey, Trump, then people say, oh, yeah, whatever. The former president of the United States of America tweeting out to the country or posting out to the country that we should suspend the constitution and put this person back in power. Now, what is that if not fascism and a dictatorship? But then we all just kind of shrug our shoulders at it. But we saw January 6th that he's not messing around in terms of moving in that direction. So that's one of the things I think that's most concerning. And there wasn't a Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene the other day saying that the January 6th supporters should have been better armed. So this language that winks at terrorism and at the destruction of our democracy is out there. And I think that that's my primary concern, that we're not taking it seriously enough as we head into um, what is going to be, you know, a very intense period of, of battle and struggle, made even more intense by the fact that we are, in fact, having these wins that we discussed in the first part of the pod. What about you, Julie? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you mentioned Uvalde, and I think that's, it's still very raw for Texans for, you know, I'm, I'm from San Antonio, as yeah. folks might have remembered, uh, mentioning me mentioning over the, you know, times I've been on here, but Uvalde is, a, you know, sort of the, the happy place that my family grew up going out to for recreation, you know, outside of the city. And um, I, I didn't know that, truly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, all of the places <laughs> that we go to that are not the beach there um, involve a stop in Uvalde before we go to the, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's going to be playing in the water at the lake, going into the rivers, inner tubing, hunting, camping, all the things we do. Uvalde is like the, the starting point for us. And um, and we have family and friends who um, who are out there. So it was just so striking for me. And we, we've talked about this once before on the podcast. But the fact that the parents that you saw on the TV cameras, the the little kids who lost their lives, the kids who lost their brothers and sisters looked so much like the people that I grew up with, my own you know nephews, nieces and whatnot, that it it, you know, just every horrific thing that happens hits you in a very deep way. But that, I think the, the fact that so, you know, parents are actually organizing and trying to keep alive the fight 
against, you know, the ability for something like that to happen again. People are having hard conversations in, you know, a place like Texas that does not have a very good approach to, um, you know, access to firearms, as you all know. And, um, you know, really doing a lot to keep the pressure on, but it's not, it, it's so far not really meeting with much success. And that's a huge, like, it's sort of one of these things of what does it take? You know, it, it's one thing when the little children that are, that are massacred are off in New England, but when they're actually the children that look just like your children yeah. and you mm-hmm. still take no action, you still aren't willing to see that perhaps some of your attitudes and things need to change. And we have to have a new politics around, around these questions. You know, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. The other thing that I feel sort of has this cultural element to it that we're not learning lessons from is, is just the whole aftermath of the main COVID wave and how you've got so many people who are dealing with long-term, you know, repercussions from having had the virus and are there, you know, not really much talk about the racial disparities and whether people are being able to get the help that they need to be able to figure out a new way of life. People who can't work the way they used to children. You know, I have, uh, I have two different friends whose kids are not able to go to school in the regular way anymore because they're having recurrent problems from having had COVID. And, you know, I, I just, I worry and I'm angry that there isn't more uh, being done. And I worry that there won't be something done and you're going to have you know, a lot of people being left behind and just thrown to the wayside in the midst of of all of this. That's a that's a really good point that that should that really needs to be prioritized. So before we close out our show, so do want to try to end on a positive note, I wanted to have a little bit of a fun conversation about our memories of our top favorite pop cultural moments of the year. Uh, again, there were many. Each year for me, especially you know, as a woman of color and especially as a mom of a girl of color, I feel more and more excited about what I'm seeing as shifts in Hollywood. Now, they can't happen fast enough, but I feel like there's much more evidence to point to. And so for one, uh, you know, and I'm talking about anything from television to movies and entertainment overall, just, you know, this year there were some really exciting things that came out and took place that more representation, representation matters. For example, the release of Wakanda Forever, which was the sequel to Black Panther, was a real highlight for me. My family and I, we actually got to watch with friends in Portugal. It was really special. All the subtitles were in Portuguese. So the sections that were in, I don't know, other languages, we have to watch the movie again because we didn't catch them because the subtitles were not in English. But um. In that movie, and this is not a spoiler, um, you know, they did do a beautiful job, I feel like, honoring the late Chadwick Boseman, who was the um, the, the actor who played the lead in the first Black Panther. Um, and some others that are just coming really quickly to top of my head. And then I'll have you guys, uh, Steve and Julie, chime in with your top favorites. Um, here are some of my top favorites in no particular order. Ms. Marvel, this was a Disney Plus series featuring a a Muslim Pakistani-American teenager who becomes a Marvel hero. Amazing. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once with Michelle Yeoh. She's just a badass queen in my mind, and I'm just so excited to see her get 
this particular moment right now. She was named by Time Magazine as Icon of the Year. And lastly, most recently, what we, my family, you know, quasi binged on is uh, Netflix's show Wednesday. Wednesday being the, the daughter character from the Adams Family. This is a remake. It's a TV series. And the lead character is played um, by Jenna Ortega and her, she and her character are, are a Latina goth teenager turned crime solver. And it's just, uh, I thought it was fabulous for it's, I'm maybe not the target audience, but my daughter and I, we just loved watching it together. And it was just wonderful to see um, a talented young Latina playing a talented young Latina on screen. So Julie, why don't I have you go first? What are some of the top of your favorite pop culture moments from this year? Well, I too am loving Wednesday. And I just have to say, shout out to my little little cousin. She is a dead ringer for Jenna Ortega. (laughs) No pun intended. She dressed up as, as, um, (laughs) as Wednesday for Halloween. And uh, yeah, we'll have to see if we can get pictures of her because she's Please. perfect. So I'm like, I, she needs to be able to play the double or whatever, you know, <laughs> for, but it's adorable. It's a fantastic show. I, you know, I'm, I guess we're outside of the age zone for being the target audience, like you said, but, but I love it. All the references to Latino family stuff, just culture stuff, you know, they're playing La Llorona's background music. It's great. It's great. Definitely a fun, fun watch. And, and you know, just really well done overall. And she's a great actress. So I, she I is. yeah, I'm really hoping for, for lots more of, of uh, her on the big screen. Me too. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think though, the big news in arts and culture for me has been the achievement of star status of a brown skinned actor in Tenochtitlan. Right. So you talked about Wakanda forever. To me, I was just so excited for the movie to come out when I realized that it was going to be, you know, one of the main uh, leads from the the movie was going to be somebody who looks and talks like Tenok does. And I mean, it it's um, it, it is like his stardom has spawned so, so many. Do those people not into the show? Do you explain? <laughs> quickly that is. oh okay well so Tenoch Huerta plays Marvel's first indigenous Mesoamerican superhero and he does it with such pizzazz that I mean it's just got everybody talking and excited and I feel like you know this is one of those situations where you, you, he's standing on the shoulders of somebody who came before so people might remember when the movie Roma came out which was an Alfonso Cuaron movie got um, you know nominated for all sorts of awards and Yalitza Aparicio who is a similarly brown like me <laughs> and then a woman who's Latin American and, um, you know, clearly has indigenous ancestry was one of the lead stars there and was not, you know, definitely garnered a lot of attention because of her different look on screen, but did was not able to, you know, take it to the level that I feel we're hopefully going to see with uh, Huerta. And I think they'll, there's just a real possibility of a first in many ways, which is sad that it took this long, but for actors from Latin American to actually look like the majority of people from Latin America. So it's a really exciting moment for me. And I think I'm, I'm just hoping it it is that door fully opening in a way that we've been slowly moving toward, but hopefully we've actually reached that point now. How about you, Steve? Well, as people know, I'm not a huge pop culture person per se, and I will not subject the audience 
to my Nordic noir <laughs> preferences in terms of shows such as Dead Wind and Bitter Daisies on Netflix. A quick shout out at those. But I think for me, what actually stood out, some on the similar theme, what we're talking about in terms of the representation who stands also interestingly generationally. So there's this new newish show, I guess it's had two seasons now on Hulu called Only Murders in the Building. And it stars Steve Martin. So in terms of generationally, as I was coming up, Steve Martin's a big deal, Saturday Night Live, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's also on the on this show is Selena Gomez. And she's this younger woman of color. She's a Texas Latina. And I didn't really know that much about her. Um, it's kind of this generational thing. But she's great on the show, and I like that show. And I've gotten to know, you know, learn more about her and watch other stuff about her. She actually has, the, she started the show during the pandemic called Selena and Chef. And she's, it's uh, on HBO. And so it's her with a famous chef who's in their kitchen and she's in her kitchen and they're doing it remotely. It's a person teaching her how to cook different things and whatnot. Just a lot of kind of personality and whatnot too, which I've actually found kind of engaging. And then interestingly, and I think significantly as well, she's become a real champion for mental health awareness. And she's had yeah, her own different yeah. struggles as she's gone through. And so this new movie documentaries come out called My Mind and Me. So she's really using her platform to lift up awareness of this and to destigmatize the whole mental health awareness field. So that's kind of a new discovery to me is kind of Selena Gomez as a, you know, cultural figure and, and leader within our society. I agree. I was just going to say, hey, we, we are also enjoying the show. And it's been, you know, kind of funny for my daughter to get so into Steve Martin and Martin Short that she's been wanting to watch all their movies as well. <laughs> so but also, I'm so moved and inspired and, and, and really in awe of Selena, what she's doing with her platform, and what how open she is being. And she's um, just... This generation, I'm telling you, it's it's really a game changer what they're doing around mental health. And it I'm just so glad there's, you know, never been another generation that's especially at the celebrities taking uh, so much intention around making a national conversation around a, a very common topic and, and and breaking down, trying, you know, working very hard to break the stigmas. So that was super fun. And every year, it's just good to be reminded that there are always, you know, there are highs and there's lows, but it's really good to remember all the highs for sure. And just to know that that's, that's just how life goes and um, that we just have to keep celebrating those wins and highs, keeping the mind, reminding each other and keeping that big picture in mind. I wanted to mention one more high note. I know, you know, we're wrapping up. But uh, many of us are celebrating and with a great sigh of relief and just really thankful the fact that WNBA player Brittany Griner is being released after her 10-month detainment in Russia. So I didn't want to end without mentioning that because that was also something that many of us were following this year in the news and you know wishing that this would happen, and, and, and it did. Yeah, certainly on that point along this representation issue, right, is that you know a tall, black, lesbian basketball mm -hmm. star and so mm. who is going to capture the imagination of america and who is the president of the united states going to leverage his power to get out of prison and would he do it for somebody who has all those attributes of the identity and that he did and she came home and it was amazing yeah and then i know i said that was going to be my last mention of a high note but i wanted to just close up by saying steve 
And speaking of inspiration, I want to just say again how much you and Susan do inspire me. You started off on your, you know, a little a little ditty about your love story. And I didn't get to take the time to just say, A, thank you as always for sharing those stories. Uh, for for those of us also in marriages where we it's also easy to lose track of those stories, um, especially in this chapter of our lives. It's really just inspiring just to keep thinking about like you guys, your love, your romance. I just adore both of you and you you guys inspire me. I just don't probably tell you enough, but it's uh, you know, you know, any partnership is not always easy, but there is really helpful for me to have models like you guys. And thank you both for joining on the podcast. And that is all the time we have for today. And that's all the time we have for this year. So thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Unifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, cherish those on the journey with you. Happy holidays. Keep the faith. And we'll talk to you in 2023.